Hey, Mia. Yeah, bestie. Are we really doing this, becoming podcast hosts now? I mean, yeah, why not? We're perfect for this job. You are a Mexican-American, you're a visual artist, you're a history nerd, and you're a multifaceted woman who loves family history. You're so right, you know, and this job you were meant for because you are a professional genealogist. You focus on oral histories and Polynesian family history. You are from the Moana, classically trained pianist, and a huge BTS fan. We were made for this. We were made for this. Let's do this. Let's do this. You're listening to the Love Your Lineage podcast by LDS Living, a multifaceted, shame-free approach to family history. I'm Mia. And I'm Michelle. And we want to help you find your space and claim your place in your family history story. So Mia, this is kind of a funny question, but I want to start this off with, what do moonwalking, glazed eyes, and the loss of the ability to care about anything all have in common? Girl, I know. As a professional genealogist, the answer is family history. (laughs) What? (laughs) This is a family history podcast, and we're admitting people struggle with family history. Oh, yeah. I mean, you and I are both aware that family history at its worst is triggering to some, but at its best, it's super boring to others. That's so true. And on this podcast, no topic is off limits. We are going to unravel some things. We are going to unpack some things and we are going to turn our hearts. Exactly. And I want to say to your reasons for not loving family history are valid and real. But we got you. We see you. And to help us kick off our show and introduce genealogical consciousness is Dr. Amy Harris, the head of the Family History Department at BYU Provo. Yay! And Yay! Mia and I are completely obsessed with Professor Harris. Mm-hmm. We are the co-presidents of her fan club. Um, if you'd like to join, just send us a message. But we are so excited to have her here and speaking about genealogical consciousness, which the term genealogical consciousness, I had no idea what that meant. And yet it has changed my life in so many wonderful ways. And we hope that it'll change your lives too. Thank you, Amy, so much for being here. Or Professor Harris. Which one? Thank you. But none of her students can. It's Professor Harris. That's right. But only when they're students, right, Mia? Only when you're a student. (laughs) Right when I, well, funny story, right when I graduated from BYU and I walked, I literally walked off the stage Mm -hmm. and Professor Amy Harris was there to give me a hug. It was very clear after that, that... We were just me and Amy now, no longer professor and student. And I love that about Amy. (laughs) BFF forever. I am so excited to have you here today because I want to talk to you about a speech you gave that completely changed my life. And this is the most amazing intro to any speech that ever was. Okay, let me play it right here. I'm going to tell you two stories today, a short one about dead cats and a long one about dead people. First, dead cats. Now, I know you might be tired of so many talks beginning with stories about dead cats, but bear with me. My parents' views on pets, cats or otherwise, could not have been more different. My mother, pictured here, grew up in a household that didn't allow animals in the house. My dad grew up in a home 
or pets, at one point including even a monkey, pictured here with my grandfather, were allowed inside. Over their 60-some-odd years of marriage, my parents struck a bit of compromise about pets in our home. Smaller, cage-bound animals such as hamsters, snakes, frogs, toads, and fish were allowed inside, but larger animals such as cats, dogs, and any animal destined to become dinner stayed in the garage, the doghouse, or the chicken coop. Dogs were confined, but cats were free to roam. Well, they were free to roam as long as I didn't pick them up and dress them in my doll's clothing. A fate the cat in this photo is clearly contemplating with a mixture of trepidation and resignation. When I was very young, we lived on a busy intersection with constant traffic. The combination of this location and the pet policy meant that cats, and there seemed to be an endless parade of them that somehow ended up at our house, rarely died of old age. I liked the cats, and I mourned their loss, and at some point I began to memorize the names and faces of all the cats who had lived, loved, and then shuffled off their mortal coils at our house. Eventually, I was unable to keep all of the memories and names straight, and in concern, I asked my mom if all those cats would meet us in heaven and if they would recognize us and we remember them. She assured me they would, that cats, such as the one I'm holding in this photograph, would remember me and I it forever. Now, the impact of that story isn't so much about the cats or what this photo clearly reveals about my early knack for fashion. It is about my mother's assurances that relationships last, much like this photograph of the two of us has lasted far beyond the moment it captured. I think this has to be one of the best intros of all time. And there has to be a great backstory to this talk. Can you tell us a little bit more about you and your family history? I'm the youngest of a big family. My parents are at the younger end of big families. So most of my grandparents were dead before I was born. So I felt like my family had this huge backstory that I didn't live through. I was always trying to gather them or labeling photos, hearing the stories. And I kind of wrote myself into those stories. So, yeah, I think I just kind of came with that interest. And then because I was interested when I went to BYU, declared family history as a major and studied it in college and went to graduate school to get a PhD in history, got a professional credential in genealogy so I could go back to BYU and teach family history there, which is what I do. And uh, am I correct in saying that it's the only bachelor's program for family history in the world? Yes. Wow. So there's... BYU-Idaho does an online applied associate's degree, which is the only associate's degree I know of in the world. And then there's a few schools that offer certificates or, you know, sort of a short term online. And then a couple schools in Scotland and Spain that offer online graduate training. But yeah, we're the only, first off, we're the only in-person program in the world that I know of and that's fully in-person. There's sometimes Mm -hmm. components in some of those European schools and definitely the only bachelor's degree. As you can tell, Michelle and I are so happy and excited to have you here today. We wanted to spend a decent amount of time talking about the idea of genealogical consciousness. And in your speech, Amy, you define it as, quote, genealogical consciousness is an ethic, a moral way of behaving based on seeing oneself and one's actions as inextricably linked with past, present, and future people's lives and hopes. Genealogical consciousness means seeing how past, present, and future are connected. Again, not in an abstract sense, but in the lived reality of actual thinking and feeling people. 
and how they and we are connected over time and space. So Mia, this all reminds me of this beautiful story that you told me about you driving in a car. And if you guys are still having like a hard time grasping, okay, what exactly is genealogical consciousness? Mia has this beautiful story she's going to take you through that that helped me a lot. Okay. Okay. Um, so genealogical consciousness has is something that my ancestors have always thought of as an indigenous Oceanian. I know that my ancestors knew what it was like to think about those who were coming after them and those who came before them. So in the story, I imagined myself driving in a car. So I'm in a nice car, comfortable, driving down the freeway. And I am trying to get from one place to another. And in order for me to get there, I had to travel along this road. But then I also had to think to who made this road first. Someone had to make it first in order for me to drive down it. And so indigenous Oceanians always believed that the past was in front of them and the future was behind them. So today, we don't necessarily think that way. We think the opposite, where the future is in front of us and it's unknown and we're going into it and we leave our past behind us. But that's not necessarily true because in order for us to get from one place to another, the road has to be paved in front of us, kind of like driving a car. I am looking forward and I'm going down the freeway to go from one place to another. And someone had to come here and chisel out this road and lay down the cement and make sure that it was safe for me to go down. And what's in front of me and what's clear is the past. So my ancestors, they, they knew that the success and the power in their lives and for their future was to look to the past. Because in learning from our ancestors, coming to know them, they can prepare us for what we cannot see which is our futures, which is behind us. And so constantly looking to them will give us the answers that we need and that all of us, as we learn about them, we learn about us because we are our ancestors in the present form. And our timeline is not, not linear, it's cyclical. One eternal round, we are all connected to each other. Mia, I love that story uh, from Oceania. You know, I love learning about indigenous teachings and the way that indigenous people experience time, which is so, it's so different from what I grew up, you know, in the United States learning about time and space. Um, there is this ancient Haudenosaunee or Iroquois uh, philosophy about seven generations. And I want you to close your eyes and visualize, imagine seven circles. Starting from the left, we got your great-grandmother, your grandmother, your mother, then you. You're that circle right there in the middle. Then your children or your nieces and nephews, and your great-grandchildren and your great-great-grandchildren. That's seven generations. It's, it's the ability to think about 75 or more years into the past from where you are right now, and about 75 years into the future from where you are right now. And that is genealogical consciousness. Mind <laughs> blown. Wow. So Amy, as co-presidents of your fan club, which by the way, 
Michelle and I have pins with your face on it and that we're so proud to wear. People ask me all the time, who's that? Girl, that's who I'm the biggest fan of. So we want to know more information about how you coined that term genealogical consciousness. Could you tell us more about that? So I got thinking about the idea more. So we use the word consciousness with lots of things like historical consciousness that we're aware of how the past affects us or class consciousness or uh, feminist consciousness, whatever. Right. So as an academic, you're sort of heard a million of flavors of that. And I was working on I do 18th century British history and history of family stuff. And I was working on something for that. And I don't even remember what it was exactly. And I was thinking about how they thought, how this family I was studying or something thought about their connection to other generations. And I coined the term for myself, genealogical consciousness. And I went to a conference. It was on the history of families, a small conference. It was in Finland. It was very cool. I felt very grown up. Um, but um, And I tried it out there in a historical, you know, sort of as a tool to understand histor- the past. And it was fine, <laughs> but no one else in the room was nearly as excited as I expected them to be. <laughs> and because I thought, oh, I guess I'm not really on to something. I thought I was. But so I had that phrase in my head. And then uh, when they asked me to give the form talk at BYU, so they asked me in April and I gave it in July. That phrase came back, but I started to think of it more theologically, I guess, right? And more ethically and moral than just as an analytical tool for understanding the past. And so it was, it was, and I read a bunch of stuff. I read so much stuff that spring, <laughs> seeing who else had thought about, you know, it's not like I'm the only person that's thought about, oh, the past is important. Um, but, and I just really started to think about what's the point of doing this if it can't transform us in some way? What's, uh, by this, I mean family history. Because mm-hmm. I love it, right? And you guys love it, and lots of people love it that There's are just into it. There. Yeah, yeah, and they're just yeah. into it. But that's like 3% of the church, right? So <laughs> so it can't be that. And, and it's puzzle solving, and it's fun, and it's intellectually engaging, pays my bills. Um, you know, it does a lot of things for me. But those aren't transcendent things. They're, they can, I think they can still be consecrated things because the person doing them is consecrating their time and their effort, but they're not transcendent for other people. They're not meaningful to other people to make another person live ethically or morally. Yeah. So then I got thinking about, so what is it about family history that would change how we actually live? And it can't just be about doing baptisms for the dead. There has to be something if it's heart turning that, you know, there has to be something transformative in there. And so I think, number one, it should teach us, family history should teach us to not see the dead as objects, Mm -hmm. that they are not objects we move around to demonstrate our righteousness. And they're people. And if you really believe that all people who've ever lived are God's children, and they will, you will see them again someday. You owe them some sense of respect, right? That they, this is, this is a person. So they can't, they shouldn't be an object. And then I think that should spin in, well, if the dead should not be objects, the living should not be objects. Mm. And so the number one rule should be in family history, first, do no harm to the living yes. <laughs> and don't objectify anybody. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so that's how I, I've thought a lot about it since that talk, because I feel like some of those ideas came through me in my experiences, but also were above my own thoughts and experiences. So I think about it too, like, what does that really mean? And I think if you really let it sink in, it transforms us in a way that your better neighbor 
You're less likely to think you're superior to your neighbor based on race or class or nationality or gender or sports team you support. I don't know, right? Well, the stupid ways we hate each other and are cruel to each other. And I think it makes us less inclined to exploit one another sexually, economically, physically, all the ways we do that. So to me, that's that makes family history something that's built on this really beautiful grand scope of the salvation of all of humankind and can help you in the nitty gritty day to day life. Like religion to be effective has to be kind of cool and transformative on a big scale. And it has to make a difference in how we live now. It has to has to mean something in how we live now. And so I think genealogical consciousness is just a label for letting basically the atonement transform how we treat each other. Ooh, that's so good! <laughs> I just need to take the two of you with you everywhere I go. Because oh, I feel yes. way more amazing. Wearing a fan you are you amazing. Totally should. I got about? definite chills. Wow. And I love that, like, when you talk about our ancestors being people and... And that that is so important because I think we put our ancestors on a pedestal and we either it's either and or or they were either good or bad. And if we know anything about people, we are complex people. Humans are complex. And to be able to take your ancestors in your in their complexity broadens this story of your life. Your your family history story is so much broad more broad with the complexity of each person. And the 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 bigger the scope, the more beautiful it is. And also painful. Yeah. Yes. But, but then then if we can pivot to think, wait, the people I live with and work with and are annoyed with at the red light are like that too. Yeah. That they're mm-hmm. complex, that they're good and bad, that yeah, and that's you can that's, hold more space for them, yeah, yeah. and you can hold more space for your ancestors. And I, one thing that genealogical consciousness has taught me is that the more I can hold more space for the complexities of my ancestors who are my family, the more ability I have to hold more space for living people who are also strangers in their complexities right. as well. And that's changed my life, like honestly. Well, and the stuff you put on your Instagram account, right, and your art where like these all these people are my people. Like the post I remember you posting, and I think I've talked to Mia about this, about you saying, you know, reading stuff from an ancestor who would have thought your existence was an abomination, I think was yeah. the word you used. Because yeah. she thought mixed race was evil, like uh, lots of people in the nineteenth century and twentieth yeah. century. Yeah. And um that's really hard to grapple with, to think yeah. like the person that I'm a descendant of mm-hmm. would not have seen, seen my existence as legitimate, yeah. right? Would have seen my existence as a violation of some natural order nonsense yeah. or something. And how do I love them and anyway? How do I lo- yeah. And I've heard that a lot from a lot of, you know, the, the queer LGBTQ community that, you know, it's hard for them to connect to their ancestors because of the same reasons that yeah. that they wonder how much their ancestors would have even loved them or accepted them just as some of their living family is not accepting them or loving them. And I think, you know, dealing with our dead maybe is a, I don't know about easier place to start, but just like, if you can't deal with living people, let's, let's try out some things with dead people and see, (laughs) that sounds weird, but not in in trying things with them in the actual literary thing, but like spiritually, like having these connections and these conversations 
with people that, that may not be accepting of you, but maybe you could accept some things about them. And, you know, for myself on that journey, when I, during, uh, Dia de Muertos and I, and I build my ofrenda and I put my ancestors photos on there, you know, cause I'm a multiracial person. So I have multiracial background, multiracial family. You know, I, the thought does come to me. These two people probably wouldn't have ever liked each other. Um, these two people or this person in particular would have been not been happy to be part of um, an indigenous celebration. Um, but then I make space for them and say, you know, I know people can change. Yeah. And that's one of the greatest things about the atonement and about having an afterlife is and what we believe specifically in the church that there still is room for growth after we die and i want to believe that my ancestors can grow and things that like whether it's racism sexism homophobia xenophobia that those are the things that through through help of jesus christ they can they can let go and be more loving and accepting and make space for me and and i i i hope i hope yeah. well i i've had people say you know, that they can feel that kind of, that they can grant forgiveness through the veil. I believe right? that. Wow. And, and and that person can vice versa, vice yeah. versa and yeah, growth and healing on the other side of the veil. Yeah. Well, that makes sense because I mean, when we talk about the temple and the ordinances that we perform there, you know, I often think about how when we take our ancestors with us to the temple and are performing work for them, we're literally bringing them to the throne of God to be transformed, to be healed, to be cleansed of their sins of their generation. And we know through the priest of power that as we take care of our ancestors, that that power blesses all of their descendants, AKA us. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when we take care of them and we actively are thinking of them and doing this loving act of not just taking them to God, but us going with them to God, God, um, constantly, not just in a one-time act of the temple, but through our lives, by thinking of them, by honoring them, by, you know, constantly trying to actually know who they were as Christ would know them. It's, I, I truly believe that that's where the real heart turning and the transformation comes from, right? And we, like you mentioned to Amy, that family history, oftentimes we make people as objects rather than really thinking of them who they are. And it just makes sense that when we talk about hearts, they're a living, breathing thing. Mm -hmm. In order for living, breathing things to be moved and transformed, we have to work with other living, breathing things, which is our family, right? Yeah. And God and That's Christ. Yeah. It is hard. It's not easy. Yeah. And I don't think it ever was meant to be easy. Mm -hmm. And I want to pop in here and mention that while we have been talking about temple ordinances, we want this podcast to be a space where everyone feels included. And we are very much aware, even within our own families, both me and I, there are ancestors that we will never know their names. There are ancestors we will never know their faces that we will never be able to take to do um, temple ordinances. And so... There is space here for you if that is your case in your family. And we are definitely going to address that as we go on more in, in the show. I really appreciate you saying that, Michelle, and holding space for those who may not have the same opportunities as many others, especially in our church, to have the privilege to find names to take to the temple. Currently, we don't have 
the ability to know and find every ancestor. I really believe that God is aware of each and every individual and that one day it will be revealed to us. It's just not yet. And that heart turning does not require going to the temple or knowing someone's name. Exactly. So I think, you know, anyone within the diaspora living in the United States, so specifically, you know, Black, Indigenous, people of color, I mean, with colonization, if you have Indigenous ancestry, there's only so far back you can go. If you have enslaved ancestry, you know, most of our enslaved ancestors were listed as their age and their sex. They didn't even get to have a name. And so um, a lot of us, that's as far as we can go, maybe even just knowing they existed. And if we're lucky enough to maybe have a DNA test, that's the first time we, we even know of their existence in our life, which is it's hard. It's really sad. Yeah. I mean, even for a lot of indigenous people, for even my own ancestors, our language has been threatened over time, again, through colonization. And that has also threatened the record keeping that we had, which was oral tradition. And so many of us don't have written records. And so we don't have an account of who our ancestors were generations ago, though generations ago, our families knew who they were. So it's, it's not always possible because of that. At some point, it's not possible for all of us. And and most people don't like that I share that story. (laughs) But, you know, if you're Irish, good luck getting past 1800-ish. Scotland, maybe the same, but maybe you could get to the 1690s. Um, But for anywhere in the world, there's a reason you're not allowed to do temple work before 1500 without proving this was a real person and they haven't had their temple work done. Is the records just aren't as comprehensive. There are some Chinese father-son lineages that go back quite far and some Korean ones, I believe. Um, But these are a small fraction of people. So we run out of records. We run out of knowledge pretty quick. Um, And I know that's hard for some people because they think that our job is to, you know, do all the work before the millennium. But I think that, I think there's method in that madness to sort of remind us, this is God's work. This isn't us just checklisting off name after name after name. The scope of what we can accomplish is just a drop in the bucket for all of the history of humanity. And so maybe that's a reminder to be a little humble with what we're doing and that, you know, God has them all in his hand, like you said, right? He will, our heavenly parents will, will love their children and care for them. Um, and we just, we do this, I, I see it as, as an offering. We do family history work as, a, as an offering that we actually believe it. And we know the offering is, I mean, it's like slaying a lamb. It doesn't actually do anything, right? It's just a symbolic gesture of we actually believe all of humanity is covered by the infinite eternal atonement. We actually believe we have eternal parents who love and care for us. And we're going to do our little piece to show the little way we taste that by feeling that way for our family. But we're all going to run out of records. And maybe that should make us a little more sympathetic for those whose records run out sooner, right? Who can only get to the first person in the 1870 census because they're enslaved ancestors. Yeah. There's no record. And they can do a DNA test, but that doesn't give them names and stories. I think I think it's like anything, you know, if you've always grown up having something, you've never thought about what it would be like to go without. And I would love, you know, this podcast to be part of that journey for people to realize wow, I'm so blessed to have what I have. And that would be really difficult to 
to not know and not have that. And I loved what you said about being this work being us being humble um, while doing this work. But I also, you know, would love to add to that being creative. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, there's one thing as, as a creative person, as an artist, you know, there's obstacles in your way and you have to think of multiple ways to get over that obstacle. And that's one of the things I also love, but also frustrates me about family history <laughs> is that here's this opti- obstacle. What, what can I do to really help me go around it? And, uh, the ways, the creative ways that I found to go around things have often been the most heart turning ways. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So if we've got a lot of people out there who either can't or it's just not like the way that they feel connected, uh, by taking names to the temple, what are some real life ways that they can apply genealogical consciousness and do family history work? Which I even hate saying that because I feel like a lot of people are going to be like, ooh, you said the F word. <laughs> so um, what are some ways that we can uh, we can bring this kind of energy into our life? Well, I mean, one of you said earlier, right, what's heart turning? That doesn't require being in the temple. The ordinance work is a component, right? But like you said, how do you bring it into the, the rest if you're not in the temple 24-7? So what yeah. do you do? So I, first off, I want to say, I think, so I have to uh, speak in church Sunday in an ward that not, not my own. And the topic is um, mighty change of heart. And so I was thinking about how heart turning, Alma echoes that language with a mighty change of heart, Um, that heart turning and heart changing are similar things. So I think things that in your daily life, so it could be is there an ancestor or is there a living family member that you struggle with? You know, what could you do? And I, I don't, you know, I don't mean somebody who's abusive to you and you need to stay away from. I don't mean that. I just mean somebody that you're like, they irritate you or they've hurt you. You know, what could you do to sort of extend a little heart turning to them? Right. And Maybe understand. Yeah. Just trying to understand who they are or come come to them with curiosity from another place, right? The thing that you can't engage on, maybe let that be and yeah. be curious about some other part of their life. What was your childhood like? Or... And yeah, and so you ask them a little bit about where they came from or, you know, that kind of thing. I think it can be pretty simple, some of the stuff. At a family gathering to just ask a older family member about the first time they went to school or their first date or... I mean, I, I, my sister recorded my mom a lot of times and we'd never heard the first date story. It was hysterical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you just have to be a little more mindful about, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go to this family reunion that usually ends up being weird or <laughs> whatever it is, right? <laughs> Traumatizing. And I'm going to have a mission, right? I'm going to have one question to ask one side of the family or one person that side of the family that connects me to them, turns my heart to them in some simple way. And, and to just keep those doors open. Yeah. And I think, too, what you said, Amy, um, those questions are great to ask people, whether it be family members or friends or neighbors. And it reminded me of one of my first family history assignments at BYU in the program. And um, I was asked to do a project to um, a family history project and like publish it online as a blog or a video website. And I decided to go with a blog because that was the thing <laughs> when I was a student. And um, 
I was in that phase of my life where I was done serving a full-time mission and um, I was ready to get married and to move on with my life in that way. And so I thought, well, because this is what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to get married, I'm trying to date right now. I wasn't really successful, but I was trying. And I thought, you know, it'd be great to know how my aunties and uncles, my parents, grandparents, tried to find each other and how that worked out. And so I interviewed all of them. Yeah, thanks. And I I interviewed all of them and I posted both of um, all their stories on the blog, but also from the perspective of the husband and then of the wife. I kept it separate (laughs) for a reason, right? Because usually the wife likes to go on and say her things. And now that I'm married, that's very true. And so, um, but it's so good to hear both perspectives. And I think learning and capturing those stories. I mean, I heard details I never heard growing up about my parents and about their dating life and stories and even with my grandparents too and aunties and uncles, but it gave me not only a glimmer of hope, but also their examples helped me in even just the simplest things with dating. And I mean, it really changed my life. And so I think learning to Look at yourself, be like, okay, where am I right now? What am I doing? Or what do I want to be? And where do I want to go? And then looking to those who may be around you, like your family or your friends, and asking them, like, so you're at this part in your life. How did you get there? Or how did this happen? And I really think that'll help turn your heart to them and them to you. It's it's real. Yeah. Yeah. And for a lot of us, you know, in the diaspora, we might not have family that's close or family that's willing to talk to us. And so in in my in my case it's it's been really hard and I think that's where my art really was born out of that desire to know, communicate, have some sort of relationship with these people that I didn't have a photograph or even sometimes names. And so I started, you know, having dreams or just looking at myself in the mirror because I carry my ancestors in in me and and starting to just paint people from from my mind, ancestresses, and that has helped me feel really connected to them. And whether or not they hear me, you know, I don't know, but I have put forth a great effort to say, I want to know you. And I won't go into specifics uh, at this point, but I've really had some instances where I know that they heard me and that they've responded and helped me find them. Um, or, or even just little tidbits about their lives, maybe not their names or even photos, but I do have a lot more photos now than I ever did before because of these unconventional crazy ways <laughs> to try to connect. Can I just plug in something really nuts and bolts practical? Yeah. If you can't find names, go to the temple for whatever reason, or you can't even find names, right? The internet, just you can be creative. And if you don't have Michelle's drive to become an artist to do that, Mm -hmm. you could write poetry about them. You could write, you could do fictional accounts of their life, whatever. But the internet, just you can look at pictures where they're from. You can read history about where they're from. You can know the art and the literature that was produced at the time they lived. There's just so much available now that you don't have to, you know, travel to the place to see that. I mean, if you can, that's awesome. That's a great way to connect, even if you don't know the names. But there's so many ways you could just learn about their context that's just free as long as you have Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of hairstyles and jewelry. Like oh, I textiles. Love, you do love that whole thing textiles. Yes. Love it. And so. you with your bedtime stories, right? Yes. Like just folk ways, folk. I mean, there's so many things that 
frankly, you owe feminist historians because, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, instead of the sort of top down kings and warriors kind of history, and it's not by feminist historians, I don't just mean women. I mean, people sort of, wait, what were women doing? And so we know so much more now about how mm-hmm. they prepared food and how food and clothing was part of a religious experience or mm-hmm. an expression. And we just, we just know so much more about the overall people's lives, even if they're not your people exactly, you know, but you know, your people were there. there That's, at that time. Yeah. It's, it's so exciting. It's yeah. still, it's still so exciting for me to this day. Yeah. Just some really cool stuff. So that makes me think of something. Can I add another story real quick? I was writing this story for my nephew for his Christmas present. It's not done yet. But um, if you do not have, like if your direct line ancestors are meh <laughs> mm. or abusive or horrible or and or if you don't have descendants, it can feel like family history stuff doesn't apply and you don't get to participate. And maybe even talking about genealogical consciousness feels exclusive because you're like, well, I don't have anybody to pass it on to. I don't get to become a new ancestor. So I was writing this story for my nephew at his parents' request that he get a a family history story. And I'm handwriting it in a journal with pictures and stuff. Um, That he has inherited, in addition to all this straight linear descent stuff we all know about, he's inherited 200 years of what I call unfiltered anting. So (laughs) my great, great, great aunt Elizabeth, who married and had one child who lived not to two years old and never had any other children. So she has no descendants. And my great aunt Cecil, who got married later and they never had children, so she has no descendants. And my Aunt Lillian, who got married and had a child that predeceased her and didn't have kids herself, so she has no descendants. And two of my older sisters, who've never married and don't have children, they don't have descendants. I don't have children. I don't have descendants. That he and all my nieces and nephews are beneficiaries of that kind of anting. Everybody loved Aunt Cecil, right? Her nieces and my great Aunt Elizabeth, they all just referred to her as Aunt Browett. That was her married surname. Um, for generations. My dad knew stories about her, even though she died 25 years before he was born. Um, and Aunt Cecil was the last line of her obituaries. Like she's much loved by her nieces and nephews. And Aunt Lillian was much loved. I have her piano. My sister has glassware she bought her. That piano later this year is going to go live at my nephew's house who learned to play the piano on that, that piano. Um, and there's some naming connections where some of them are named for each other. Um, so I think there's a way to participate in genealogical consciousness that isn't linear and isn't, it isn't about biology, right? It's not about, can you reproduce? And it also allows you to connect parts of your family, even if they're not, you know, you can set aside abusive parts or not so great parts if you're not ready for that and hold on to other parts of your family history. Oh my gosh. Thank you for sharing that. Professor Harris or Amy, my friend. I'm so grateful for your influence in my life. And I know I speak for Mia when we are so grateful that you would be our first guest on this podcast. And um, we are going to continue to grow your fan club. (laughs) And thank you for, for all you've done to improve our lives and to help us connect to our families in a healthy, uh, heart-turning way. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's, it's been a delight and I'm just, I'm always touched the way the two of you support me and respond to me and encourage me. Thank you. You're the best. We love you. We love you. Thank you. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Love Your Lineage. You can find all the references and full transcripts for this episode in our show notes at ldsliving.com slash loveyourlineage. And if you love this episode, please, please, please leave us a review or a rating. This episode was hosted by me, Mia, and the lovely Michelle. It was produced and edited by Erica Free and Katie Lambert and mixed by Mix at Six Studios. Thank you for being with us today. And we hope you feel empowered to love your lineage and to embrace your authentic family history story. 